Welcome to the Evolutionary Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Castles, PhD. This week we have a topic that is a bit more sensitive, and so I want to give a fair warning ahead of time that this may not be for everyone. I am joined this week by Amy Wright Glenn, the founder of the Birth, Breath, and Death Institute, and we are talking about her work in training others about how to hold space for pregnancy loss. Now, many of you may know that one in three women approximately will suffer a pregnancy loss, whether it's an early miscarriage or a later stillbirth. And as many of you probably know, there is not a lot of support around that. It's a topic that's often taboo and something that women don't even open up to amongst each other. So we're going to look at why this is so hard, what are the struggles facing people, and also what are some of the complications that can interact with pregnancy loss that make the situation that much harder for some people to cope with. So please join me as I welcome Amy Wright Glenn as we talk about pregnancy loss. All right, with me today, I have Amy Wright Glenn. She is the founder and director of the Institute for the Study of Birth, Breath, and Death, an innovative organization dedicated to the personal and professional growth of those called to hold space for life's sacred thresholds. Amy is the author of two books, Birth, Breath, and Death, as well as Holding Space. Amy crafts and teaches workshops, courses, and teacher trainings for the Institute, as well as working with individuals one-on-one. She is also a dear friend of mine, and if you follow Evolutionary Parenting on Facebook, one of the admins there, so you will recognize her from that. Thank you so much for being here, Amy. Oh, it's a joy, Tracy. It's always a joy to connect to you. Thank you for inviting me. I know it's so nice to, to, I get to see Amy while we record this. So it's so nice to have that again after so long. So we're talking generally today about pregnancy loss, but before we get into the nitty gritty details there, what's so fascinating about your work is that you really are one of the few people that has integrated these larger elements of birth and death uh, together for people. So I want to ask, how did you get into that? I mean, how did that come about? Was it a natural flow from one to the other? You know, where did you become interested in birth, interested in death, and then interested in the integration of both of them? I think it's a really thought-provoking question because these are threshold points we all know, we all experience. We're all born and we die. And sometimes people die before they're born in the case of a stillbirth, but it's integral to our human mortal life. And I taught a course at the Lawrenceville School, which is a boarding school in New Jersey called Myth and Ritual. And we designed or I designed the curriculum with one, the first unit for the students focusing on rituals of creation and rituals of destruction or myths of creation, myths of end of life. So I had the first unit be birth and death. And I taught that course for 11 years. So in my mind, they already were linked as a powerful way to enter into studies like anthropology, sociology, mythology, religion, philosophy. And then I became a birth doula. And I tell the story of how that happened in my first book. Uh, It related to being asked to be the birth partner for my sister when she was pregnant. And in the middle of supporting her through her labor, the midwife turned to me and said, you would be a good doula. 
And I felt like the seed went into my heart from her words, right? And I felt this warmth in my body. I thought, ooh, something she just said could change my life. And tears had come to my eyes in that moment. And I thought, oh, I will explore that. So I did explore that. And I became a birth doula and certified and in over 40 something, 40, 50 births of supporting different families through birth. During that time, while I'm teaching this course on myth and ritual, I started to really recognize how rich the experience of birth was for my scholarship to have the experience of being with families through birth informed my academic world so deeply. So I thought it's gotta be the same for death. What could I do to train to support people through their dying that would also inform and deepen my understanding as an academic or as a, or as a human being. And I have a bachelor's and master's degree in comparative religion. I was active in my Unitarian church leading courses for religious education programs. And so Gratefully, I was accepted. I applied to a CPE program at a level one trauma hospital in New Jersey where I was living. It's clinical pastoral education. It means to be trained as a chaplain in a multi-faith setting. And I'm so glad they accepted me because I was not your traditional seminary student. You know, I wasn't in rabbinical college. I wasn't in seminary to become a Christian minister. I wasn't training to be a Muslim imam. I'm a Unitarian scholar studying and teaching religion. And because I had that master's in comparative religion and because I was teaching courses and already in the hospital setting as a doula, they made an exception or they opened the door. I don't know if I was too exceptional, but just the sense like, well, you're out of the box, but you fit in enough. <laughs> we'll let you in. <laughs> So that changed my life. That training was amazing. Nine months, very intensive training, uh, being with grief, being with bereavement, being with families through death. And and at one point I was called during my training to the pediatric ward. And no, it was labor and delivery. I was called to labor and delivery. And it was a stillbirth of a, I don't know, 19 week old baby. And the mom wanted me to go say goodbye. She was afraid to see him. I hope that she chose later to see him. But at that time, I was with her. She she didn't want to. She was very clear. But she really wanted me to go in the room where he was and say goodbye to him for her. So I held space for her um, request. I also encouraged her to meditate and pray and think about the possibility of her seeing her own baby, you know, at some point because the hospital was going to keep them for a while. And I just remember walking into that room and I was alone and there is this dead little baby in the room, just this perfectly beautiful baby. And I spoke to him for a while. I just said, your mom wanted me to talk to you. She really loves you. She's really sad that you died. And I'm really grateful. I got to see you. You're so beautiful. And I'm glad I get to be the one to talk to you right now and I don't want you to feel so alone in here you know it was very heartfelt and for me there are tears and he was so beautiful and I thought my doula training didn't really prepare me for this if I had been her doula I had I had an excellent doula trainer however the time spent on death and the possibility of what they call unintended outcomes was so small it was, it was short in our three-day training and I thought there's got to be more support for doulas and that's when that that seed for me was like, I've needed to design a course that pulls together all that I've learned with birth and death and make it available for people who are doulas like I am, who 
would feel like a deer in the headlights possibly with this kind of situation because it was my chaplaincy skills that got me through it. And I realized I hadn't learned, you learn comfort measures as a doula that are important, but it was uh, really the chaplaincy skills that helped me support that mom. And I thought I need to bring chaplaincy skills to doulas more effectively. You've made me tear up thinking about that. <laughs> I'm sitting here like, okay, I'm going to not cry. Um, it is, I mean, it is, it is amazing to me. It's one of those things where, it seems so logical. How did we overlook that element um, when it comes to, I would say, doulas, but not just doulas, but midwives as well. I'm not sure they get the essential training in in coping with these situations for families. And I know I've heard from families that have unfortunately experienced loss during the birthing process, whether it's stillbirth or, or very shortly thereafter, you know, it's really case dependent upon how good someone is in supporting them in that moment. So, but yet we know this is an inevitability for many families that they go through it. And when we think, you know, if you go back even earlier to miscarriage, where you may not have a doula, but you may have your midwife already, you know, it affects so many women. We're looking at, you know, somewhere around a third of women will have a miscarriage in their lives. And that is something that is profoundly impactful on your emotional state and well-being. So being supported for that is is just crucial. I want to go back to just something you said, because I think it's a term that I know from you, but I know a lot of people will probably question what it means and how it is. And that is holding space. What I mean, I think people hear that and they say, what on earth is she talking about? in terms of holding space. Can you elaborate on that? Because I think it's so central to what you do and what you help people do. Sure. Well, it's a term that's becoming more popularly used, and I'm glad. And I think it is helpful to define it really clearly. And I think people who are in um, professional roles who use that term are wise to define it. So in my second book, Holding Space, I do introduce where I encountered the term for the first time and credit that person. And, and I'm grateful for her. Her name is Heather Plett. And she lives in Canada. She is involved in um, supporting and training people in, in her understanding of holding space. And what she did is she wrote a really powerful piece that was it went pretty viral. It was translated in different languages, you know, a few years ago, but it's about um, her mother's death. And it said something, and the title was something, eight ways to hold space or holding space and eight ways to do it well. And it was modeled. She, she looked at the palliative care nurse that was assigned to support her family through her mother's death. And, and she and her sister and this nurse did most of the care. And she found this nurse to be so effective, not just in terms of skill okay so it's clinical skill but really emotional tone being able to resonate being able to connect and and be a safe place for the two sisters to express the complexity of their grief and also for the mother to make uh, as much pos as much as possible a container of safety around her experience of letting go and dying so that's where i first heard the term and i remember being really struck by the term holding space and really wanting to use it in my own work. And then I, I've been reading for a few years the work of Alan Wolfelt, and he's the director and um, founder of the Center for Life and Lost Transition in Colorado. He uses the term companioning, that we companion the bereaved. We walk alongside, we're curious, we listen, we lean in, we uh, don't assume we know more. 
we recognize grief is like a wilderness and we all enter it that we're changed through grief, that it's not a sickness, that it's not anything pathological. He has a very beautiful understanding, I think, of, of bereavement care. And he's been involved in bereavement counseling. He has a PhD in therapy or psychologist uh, for 30 years. So I've been really moved by his work. So when I use the term holding space, I define it as bringing compassionate presence to what is. And that can be birth, it can be death, it can be parenting, it can be eating your cereal, it can be <laughs> doing yoga. I mean, we, we, we can hold space for our lives. We can bring compassionate presence to what is. And some situations are better um, held than others. You know, if I'm getting attacked by someone, I don't know if my capacity to turn around and look at that person and hold compassionate space for their dangerous aggression is wise, number one, or... Um, merited. And that in some situations, I think we do need to meet life with a different tool. But this is a tool, the tool to show up with compassionate presence, you know, as a teacher, as a chaplain, as a doula, as a mother, as a sister, as a friend, that tool is something we can practice, we can study, we can read about, we can learn. It's a soft skill. It's not a hard skill like I'm embroidering and I have to get it right with the needle. It's a soft skill. It's a interpersonal skill. It's a also, it's a skill we apply to ourselves. Can I hold compassionate space for, or can I bring compassionate presence to an addiction I'm struggling with, or to my aging process, or to the fact that I'm always running late and I'm struggling, you know, like I'm trying to imagine all the possibilities where we are critical of ourselves. And, and I think it's wise to think, well, what would it look like if I held compassionate presence for that part of me? that feels so unlovable? Would it change, you know, would it change my relationship to myself or to my children? My, so it's a long-winded answer, but I hope that helps. <laughs> it does. It absolutely does. And I think it really segues into what I want to ask next because, you know, turning on to pregnancy loss, stillbirth, or, or even early loss, it doesn't have to be, it can be just post-birth. Lots of women experience death in the first few days or weeks after birth. And that is, you know, traumatic as well. So I don't want to limit it just to pregnancy loss, but it raises the question because it sounds so, I mean, it sounds like an easy skill when you think about someone who is bereaving, someone who has experienced grief. And yet we know there's a stigma around pregnancy loss. We know there is a lack of support for many women during this time, for partners, for everyone experiencing the loss. And it makes me wonder what in that process of holding space do you think is going wrong for people? Where, Why is it so hard for so many people to be compassionate during this incredibly difficult period of pregnancy loss? Well, I, I wonder if it's not the presence part of holding space versus the compassion that's difficult because I think it's easy to have compassion. Well, maybe easy. I think it's probably easier for most people to have compassion for loss, but to be present to the experience of grief, to be present to someone's deep, heartbreaking, tearful, like yelling and sorrow. And I don't want to eat and I want to die. And my baby died. And what does this mean? And I hate life, you know, just, or, Oh my God, what about my faith? What, what does it say about God? You know, all the questions, all the sorrow, all the self doubt. Did I do something? Was it the wine I drank? Was it the medicine I took? Is it my, you know, 
you know, all the things that I've listened to over the years with people who are bereaved, bereaving, or bere- who are bereaved about um, infant death or pregnancy loss. It's the, I think it's the presence to that that's hard because we live in a grief phobic culture. We live in a death phobic culture. We, and, and then when you think about babies, you know, little ones dying, it's, it's even harder. If we can't speak easily about the fact that grandpa died, you know, and, and we want to just clean it up with a quick funeral and, and it's just, um, there's not a lot of space that we, or presence maybe is the word. We don't show up to our own grief. We tend to shove it down. We don't want to feel. We eat it out. We like have um, addictive behaviors to cover it. We don't sit with grief well as a culture. We just don't. And I think we can change that. And I think some subcultures do. And I think because the baby boomers are aging and dying, there's more talk about what it means to speak openly about death. But it's a topic already that's hard. And then you add to it children dying or babies dying or or the blood of miscarriage. And it's so private and it's your personal body and it's your privates and it's your vagina. It's just like, oh, my God, no one went, who who can be present to that? Yeah. You know, who can show up? I think we can have compassion, but it's compassion behind closed doors or it's compassion from a distance. And that doesn't really help someone who's bereaved, who feels already so alone. Yeah. So I, that's how I approach that question. I, that's how I would answer that. I, I think it, it reminds me of in parenting our triggers. When we talk about people who struggle, you know, to yell because they see a behavior in their child and it's triggering of their own upbringing, of something that is uncomfortable for them because they weren't allowed to express it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, as a parent, you react in unfortunate means in those situations. We cannot be calm. We cannot remain you know, as that space that our children need, that rock of steady, calm presence that they need when they're acting out, we in turn end up feeling stressed by it. And it feels similar that if we're not Mm -hmm. allowed, if we felt like we can't express our grief, Mm -hmm. we go there. But, you know, and I think you're probably right that that's the vast majority of cases. But I think even, I mean, I'll be honest here, my own reaction right away that gut, and I had to catch myself and stop myself when you shared about the woman who didn't want to see her baby. I can't fathom that, but I'm going, how could she not want to see her baby? And mm-hmm. we get a visceral response to other people's grief process. And mm-hmm. I, and maybe it does go back to the fact that we don't allow it. Because as soon as I say that, I'm like, well, of course, I haven't experienced a wide array of ways in which people grieve because mm-hmm. it is so private and it mm-hmm. is so hidden that we do step back. So without that witnessing of grief, how can we accept what's normal, what's, you know, or rather that it's all normal, but expressed in different ways and have, have space mm-hmm. for that. If that right. makes sense, it's, yeah. it's there. But with that too, is another flip side. So I had a miscarriage before my first child and I was grieving and I, the best advice I got from a friend who had previously miscarried just before um, was she said, you know, just to warn you, Everyone will be supportive at first. You will have all the support. But after a certain time, it's going to be, okay, can we be done with this already? Are are you ready to get back? Like, there's a clock on your grief for that. And she's like, just be prepared for that because you probably won't be ready, but you're going to feel like all of a sudden you have to be. And I don't know, have you experienced that? How does that play into your work with people? Because as a doula, how long, you know, how long are you there? 
um, beyond that stage? And how can people understand this timeline that is forever in many cases? I mean, I think about death more generally and grief doesn't disappear. We always talk about it gets quote unquote better with time. It gets different with time. Mm-hmm. It's, But I don't think our grief itself abides. It just transforms into something else. It may emerge less frequently. We learn to sit alongside it perhaps a little bit better. But, you know, as I think about what you do and how your training goes with people, how does that play in this idea of a timeline to grief? So the holding space for pregnancy loss training I created, which over 900 people have taken, is not only for doulas. It's for anyone involved in supporting birthing people or birthing families and also bereaved parents who may want to re-examine their own story through a a supportive lens. And the companioning or holding space piece that we've spoken about is, is one component of three. So there's three circles that interlap that create the framework for the training. And so there's companioning or holding space. There's strengthening support networks. We spend a lot of time thinking about the circles that support people and how we can strengthen them to be able to companion more skillfully, but also strengthen them so they exist and create laws and legislature that support uh, a different approach to bereavement. Because part of the reason we have a timeline is because we have insurance that will only cover treatment and um, therapy for a certain period of time. We have this concept of managed care. And, you know, medical care, at least in the United States, is expensive. And if you have a private insurance and you're seeing a therapist around grief and bereavement, it may only cover 12 sessions. The idea of, okay, 12 sessions, you know, someone had to decide how long do we allow people to talk to a therapist for grief and cover it, you know. And so people can pay out of pocket or process and support groups, you know. Um, but but this timeline, I think it's helpful to put it in in perspective that it's due to a for-profit medicalized system that's trying to make sense of the human experience and say you have this many weeks where you miss work or you this this many weeks where you can have therapy so i don't know if this concept of the timeline would be as rigid if we didn't have those systems in place and then the third component deals with ritual how can we use secular and religious ritual to help families integrate and uh, i guess reconcile that they will always be changed from this you know, we don't return to our prior self. We're always changed every moment by life, but we're particularly changed when there's joy and deep sorrow. We we are the cells in our bodies change, our chemicals change, our, our being changes. So rituals can honor that. Um, and so I, I think it's helpful to answer your question to, re, to help listeners know that the training is not only for doulas. And while doulas may only be with people from, you know, the, through the birth or uh you know, a few weeks postpartum, the training is for, you know, I've had grandparents take it. I've had hospice workers who work with geriatric populations take the training because they say that as they're working with people through their end of life years, uh, sometimes women will say, I had a stillbirth in my thirties and no one talked to me about it. Oh my God. You know, and they're 80, but they're remembering their, these deep moments of transformation that were so silenced. And I think it's helpful to remember it wasn't too long ago that hospitals thought they were doing a favor and a service to birthing women by taking the stillbirth baby out of the room, even before you could see it. And you never saw. 
So I think that that ghost energy, like where'd they go? And this, um, you're in shock of delivery and um, the women who had their children taken, you know, like that will need support. And it may be decades later that that grief thaws or that something changes where they can talk about it. So I've had people take the training who are working with elderly people, you know, who are nowhere near a birthing room or nowhere near pregnant people, but they're working with people's memories that are decades old. So I hope that's a helpful answer to just give scope, you know. No, it does. And it's, you know, you talk about the timeline with insurance in a medical system. It also just reminds me of a capitalist system. Yeah. Because there is that when are you back at work? When are you going to start being productive for me again? That so many women face and feel like they can't talk about it. They can't break down in front of anyone because the question then becomes to your capacity to do your job. Are you too emotional? Are you too whatever? And if there isn't that, I mean, this is where I think comes the compassion piece. If there isn't the compassion and understanding, that can negatively affect how you experience it from a, a mm-hmm. work perspective, mm-hmm. everything else that you are somehow, well, it's not like you really had a baby or something like right. that that comes out with people that is heart-wrenching um, to hear those comments. I mean, I can't fathom them, but I know I've heard from women that have heard things like that as well. And they're I don't know a woman who's miscarried or had a stillbirth or had a very early death who has not felt that that child was fully still a part of them in some Mm. way, shape or form. Uh, So that is there. So as we go on, I mean, there's another element to this that we have to discuss that is part of your second course on this. Now you have elaborated on because, you know, pregnancy loss affects everyone and we're very clear on that, but there is an added element of the intersection between pregnancy loss and specifically racism. And when we look at, especially in the US, um, and we have it up here often with our indigenous communities, their marginalized groups not only experience pregnancy loss more frequently than other groups, but it seems as if the support there from everything I've seen, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, or I'd love for you to elaborate on this, but is there's less support for them um, mm-hmm. on a variety of levels. So can you tell me what, you know, what is going on? What's the behind the scenes of the intersection between pregnancy loss or stillbirth or, or early loss and race as you have looked at this? Right, right. Systemic racism impacts, you know, all facets, facets of life and it's impacting um, women of color, Indigenous women uh, in a disproportionate way, even when income levels are are uh, factored in. Mm-hmm. So it used to be that people would think, oh, the reason Black women in America have higher rates of maternal death or stillbirth or miscarriage is because they are impoverished. And so they don't have good care. And so this is a problem about care and access. But actually, we study the numbers across the and we see even wealthy women of color, even highly educated women of color, PhDs, you know, women who are established in their careers have a higher rate of low, low weight babies, you know, babies who are born, you know, thin or who are low, low weight or preterm delivery. And it's not due to the fact they didn't have good care. It's due primarily to two factors. One is their care 
they may have had access to care, but the care providers in the United States at least still report um, a belief that comes from our racist past that somehow white people are more sensitive to pain, that somehow black bodies feel pain differently. And so when black women report, I don't feel good, something's off, it's more likely to be disbelieved or minimized by care providers, even good, well-intentioned care providers, because of the fact that systemic racism impacts all of us. And uh, even as those of us who try to be conscious of it, we can become conscious more and more of how it's been impacting our, our implicit bias. So there's an implicit bias that exists still, that somehow we lift up the concerns and pain reports that white women give with more credibility. We believe that something could be wrong. And so they'll get more immediate access to care instead of, oh, go home and just rest. It's like, no, you better come in. Let's see what's going on. And then the other piece is that when systemic racism is experienced and you are the recipient of the discrimination, you know, on, on all the different levels in terms of jobs or housing or, you know, um, in classrooms and, you know, from the earliest ages, it's an effect called weathering on the body. The body is in fight, flight, freeze, fawn more frequently than it would be if it was in a system where there wasn't this bias against you. So this weathering on the body makes it more likely that when a person's pregnant, they have a higher risk of a low weight baby because their body's already full of, it's like primed with more stress, no matter how successful you are, what kind of nice car you have, you know, so it's just the implicit experience, the deeply felt physiological experience of what it's like to receive implicit bias day in, day out, year in, year out, year in, year out, year in, year out, then it creates a higher likelihood that that body is weathered in a way that makes it more at risk when pregnant. And then you add to it care providers who diminish the pain reported. And so this explains why uh, there's a higher frequency of stillbirth, miscarriage, and maternal death in communities of color across the income spectrum in the United States. So I, I um, co-teach a class, an advanced training called Advanced Holding Space for Pregnancy Loss. And it's shorter than the first training. It's um, um, eight hours and the first training is 15 hours. But that course I co-teach with a woman named Naima Beckles, who you've worked with before. You've I have. I love her. She's amazing. She is amazing. And, and we had 100 people take the training just recently. And we lift up the stories of um, women of color and indigenous women and lift up their pregnancy loss and infant death and pregnancy trauma stories because they tend to be marginalized and not as central to uh, the focus. And so we bring them to clear focus right here. And then we add to it an understanding that while we companion and support and make ritual around these losses, we also need to be aware that racism also has, we, we can respond to the trauma of racism with a companioning. Like, tell me about your experience. How do we strengthen supports? How do we restructure society so we're more conscious and um, how do we bring courses into the medical students' repertoire about the history of racism in medicine so they're more aware? And then with regard to ritual, you know, what kind of rituals in our society do we need to do? What kind of statues might need to be replaced? What kind of way do we speak about history? Or how do we engage the past and present of racism so we have more awareness? We bring more compassionate presence to the lived experience of this legacy that's still really painful.
That's it's your discussion of weathering, I think, is really important. And it's something I was looking in on in terms of, uh, you know, the stress response in other areas of life. And it's something I think a lot of people don't realize our our common conception about stress in our society is it's either really big or it doesn't really matter. So we understand that, yes, people have PTSD over major events there. You know, you go to war, you face famine, you have severe abuse or neglect. We understand those causes of stress. What is so often misunderstood is these lower levels of stress. So when we talk about systemic racism in particular, or even, you know, I think about young children experiencing small stressors in the home. These are these adverse childhood events, these ACEs. These are not major. We're not talking about abuse. We're not talking about neglect. Obviously, those are part of leading to negative outcomes. But we start to see more and more of what we would consider just regular events that can be stressful enough in the moment that if they only happen once or twice, you're fine. You get over it. It's done. It becomes tolerable, especially if you're supported and you have that support from others, then you overcome them. But if those continue over and over and over and over again, or they continue even less so, but with no support in place for you, which I know a lot of people experience, it has a profound impact on the body. And, you know, Amy talked about the weathering in terms of being prepared for pregnancy, but we also see it in terms of all sorts of other health outcomes. So we see, you know, greater risks of heart disease, greater risks of gastrointestinal disease, mental health disorders. Um, it is, it's across the spectrum of our overall health levels there. So those are things that are, until we change society, from a pregnancy loss perspective and racism, that intersectionality, something that, you know, we all have to work on immediately and urgently. But for women of color who are pregnant right now, that's not going to be something that helps. So there's the part of it that I kind of want to highlight here, too, is that care provider, the urgency of which care providers need to become aware of their behavior and the negative effect it has on it. And in that regard, I hope you don't mind me sharing, Amy, and I'm sure you know of this and talk about it as well, but um, Kimberly Seals Allers, sorry, I always want to say Sears, but it's Seals, okay? Kimberly Seals Allers um, created an app called Earth. And it is a birth app for women of color to talk about race and implicit bias in the birthing system. And it allows women of color to share their experience with various providers to open up um, almost a network. So it stems from the fact that I know she saw birth providers, one would be recommended by someone, a, a white person who would say, oh, this person's amazing. But yet a person of color goes and has an incredibly different experience because of that implicit bias, that systemic mm -hmm. racism. And so it opens up a platform to share mm -hmm. this knowledge of what birth providers are like based on how they respond to this systemic racism, how they respond to their implicit biases, and how that becomes integral to their practice. And so although we may not be able to stop the weathering for women who are already far, you know, you've already grown up, that weathering has happened. But that second stage that you mentioned, Amy, in terms of having a care provider that may be something we can start to modify with something like this. Um, just to throw that out there, because I think it's really important for people to be aware of their 
of what is happening and these changes that are being manifest to help overcome this intersection of bias racism in the pregnancy system. What though, if I may go back, are some of the issues, because it seems like there's the weathering of stress ahead, there's a reason there's a higher rate, but it also feels that from my reading, that bias, that racism still plays a role even after you've experienced the loss, that the losses are minimized more. There Mm -hmm. seems to be more of an attempt to find, well, what did you do wrong Mm -hmm. to cause it? That judgment comes out. How Mm -hmm. do you, I mean, how can you help people process that? Because I hear that and I hear that story and it just makes me want to go out and punch people. I'm really don't have that space. I can't Mm -hmm. hold compassionate space for those people that say that, but how can you, I mean, how do you approach that? Well, each of us, okay, well, how do I approach that in my own sphere of influence, which would be, you know, my, my family, my work, my community, I try to make choices that change that diet, that, that paradigm. So when Naima and I decided to co-teach this class and she lifted up this, this book an anthology called what God is honored here. It's the name of the anthology and it's stories of pregnancy loss uh, by and for indigenous women and women of color. This is the book we use. So that's one way we can address this to say no, no more will these stories be relegated. Let's lift them up. Let's bring them to the center. Let's let it, let's design a course around these stories. And I think that that's one of many, 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 many steps that uh, can be taken and need to be taken to transform long lasting systems or systems that have been in place for, you know, for centuries when it comes to things like legal slavery and then legal segregation and the desegregation and the the legal, you know, the, the legal efforts to create civil rights acts. This is really recent history and there's still an incredible amount of work to be done in inside the psyche of people. We may have laws on the books that say things, but it's in the hearts and minds of people that we we begin to transform our families and ourselves. So when I spend time with white people in particular and we speak about racism, I often will reflect on, well, you know, what look at your circles of friends. When you go to church, if you go to church, look at your church, look at your neighborhood, look at your schools, the schools you choose to send your kids. You know, how diverse are those circles? And and I think that can say a lot about how serious we are when it comes to engaging the topics. Can you elaborate on that a bit? Well, you know, I uh, I think it if all the people I spend time with think like me, look like me, are in my same income bracket, the same educational structure, same political perspective, I'm going to be in an echo chamber with my own self reflected, you know, with slightly dis- different versions of Amy and these other <laughs> folks. And, and it's not as if there couldn't be diversity, but in general, we come from like, then we're kind of cut from the same cloth. But I think there's so much to say about nourishing communities and friendships across politi- political views, religious views um, in different communities in terms of um, interest, you know, and then also when it comes to race and class, I think we benefit from having a diverse circle. So when white people speak about racism, I think it's helpful to look at how we've chosen to structure our own lives. And this goes for all of us. I'm not just only white people, but I think it's helpful to reflect 
on where do I position myself in terms of friendships? You know, where, how diverse is my circle of um, acquaintances or my family, our interactions? Do I, my, is my son hanging out with kids of color or is he only with white kids? And then we talk about racism because we read books about Martin Luther King. That's a really different experience than if my son and I spend a lot of time with friends of color and it's just part of our day-to-day living, right? Yeah, yeah. And it's hard because I, I acknowledge for many people that are there, depending on where you live, yeah. that may be easier or harder to achieve that level of diversity. Um, yeah. But I agree. I think it's absolutely essential. I want to touch a little bit on, because you mentioned those three areas of holding space, the three buckets. I always call it buckets. I know you have circles, I'm buckets. Um, but the one of the the political the legal avenues, everything. Can we talk a little bit about what do we really need? Because I think people think about, I know we need change, but what does this mm-hmm. political change look like for me to even fight for? We can say we want you know, doctors that don't have implicit bias. Well, how do we go about doing that? What are the things, what are the concrete steps that some people can take? Because there are you know, active minded people that want to be working towards this shift. And sometimes they just need to know where to take the first step and what is the stuff that can be done to help in this regard. So what are some of the things that, you know, in your work with pregnancy loss and especially in the intersection of race and pregnancy loss that you have seen come up as avenues to explore going forward? Well, if we define politics as, um, how we structure systems of power and not just governmental systems, but let's say hospitals, policies, maybe policies is another word. You know, when a hospital has policies that are based on a companioning model of care or based on what best practices say about allowing contact between the parents and an infant that died and not rushing them through contact, but allowing them to have, let's say, a cuddle cot where they can have the baby stay overnight in the room for a few days even. You know, if hospitals have policies based on best practice and reported best practice and they have staff that are trained to companion, that's a really different experience for all the people who go to those hospitals and have painful, um, heartbreaking experiences of death versus hospitals that are more clinical, hands-off, where staff don't have training and where it's okay you got 45 minutes with your little one. You know, so there's a book called Ghost Belly that I, I really find very powerful. And it's written from the point of view of a mom who had a home birth that ended in a stillbirth. And when she was taken to the hospital and finally was able to hold her son who had died at home, you know, he was he died in utero at home and then delivered him still. He was dead when she delivered him. And then they were separated in two different ambulances and went to the hospital. And then finally they were able to connect when, when they were, she was holding him, seeing him for the first time, um, processing this trauma, um, the staff came in, the nurse came in and said, you've got 45 minutes with your son, and, and then we need to take him to the morgue. And this woman, you know, she, she was white. She's um, older. She's a professor of history and gender. She was awake enough to say, Why? Why 45 minutes? Why? Well, what, why does he need to go to the morgue? And what's going to happen there? Well, the, the um, funeral home will pick him up in the morning. So he's going to be downstairs in the morgue for six hours until it's time. She said, no, no, he's staying with me. 
So she advocated for herself and pushed back against a policy that was really pretty heartless and not based on best practices. But could she have done that as if she was a 16 year old, you know, African-American or Latina or um, indigenous girl who didn't know that there, you can challenge policies, that you can say no, that you can say why, that you can say, I don't want my baby to be taken in 45 minutes. I'm just seeing this child for the first time and I'm totally lost in this physiological state of shock and grief. So that's, a, I think, a powerful example of how systems and policies around privilege, power, race, voice, woman, gender, um, and best practice all intersect to create a moment that could have been very painful for that mother if she had said, okay, 45 minutes, that's what I got. And then downstairs, separate from her for six hours is the body of her son, which makes no sense yeah. to me. It, it doesn't to me there. And it makes me think, you know, we often think, okay, I could advocate in that moment if it were me because of my privilege, because of my space. But I think it goes beyond, you know, I'm just thinking about it from the perspective of, okay, most women aren't going to find themselves in that situation. Most women of privilege will not. But something I would imagine you could do is if you are going to hospital and you are having one, make it the point of asking, what is your policy if something goes wrong? Because mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to advocate ahead of time and say, no, that's not appropriate. I'm not, if something goes wrong, I am not handling that, which also means the hospital gets feedback mm -hmm. from many women in this mm -hmm. situation. If a hospital mm -hmm. and the people involved, your OBs, your midwives, your nurses are hearing from you before anything happens, because that's the vast majority, luckily, of cases are not going to be facing this, all of a sudden they get the loud and clear message that, hey, your policies suck. And could you please fix them because I'm not okay with this? And I think that's where our voices really, you know, I'm just thinking on the top of my yes, head here, yes, where it's, yes. that is something that we all have the power to do without having to go through the experience and advocate in an incredibly difficult time. We can use our privilege of, you know, especially if, if we are white and we are privileged enough to have the respect of the caregivers that we have in the hospital. And I know that's not the case for everyone, but if you do, and especially because if you have a healthy pregnancy at the time, you're not vulnerable in that way at the moment. So the advocacy can be a, a bit stronger. Yes. You, yes. You're not dealing with grief. You're not dealing with mm -hmm. the additional levels of, well, that whole shit show, frankly, of mm -hmm. what's going on at that moment. So mm -hmm. when you have that, I think that's one way that we can all, you know, speak up and advocate. And it's probably, you know, I always maybe this is a, a wrong way to think about a doula. And so pardon, I'm making a little connection here. But when we were looking at a doula for our first birth, our midwife said, you know, I always think of it like an insurance policy. You get your doula. And if everything because everyone thinks I'm not going to need it, everything's going to go well, I've got my partner, I've got mm -hmm. this. And she was like, well, you know what, say just something a long labor, your partner's tired, this happens, so on. You know, it's it's an insurance policy. Mm -hmm. And if you get it and maybe she comes and you don't need to worry about her, she gets to chill back, but you don't need anything from her. She doesn't need to get your partner food. She doesn't need to get you food. She doesn't need to be moral support. She doesn't need to do, you know, list all these things that suddenly you're going, oh, oh yeah. Okay. Right. Um, but if she doesn't, well, great. You, you had the insurance policy there, but if perchance any one of those things happens, then maybe it's nice to have it there. And 
I think these conversations ahead of time in the hospital about policies, about what is in place if the worst should happen, should become standard discussions that we have with our caregivers. And that is how I think we can really initiate change more frequently by having, you know, us bring it up to the surface. But it goes back to exactly what you were saying at the beginning is the discomfort around grief and death, that we don't want to think about it. We don't even want to process it. So heaven forbid we talk about it ahead of time. We don't even want to go there. And yet, if we did, we could probably see much more open spaces, much more compassion, policies that are more reflective of the needs of families during that time than we would otherwise. I mean, does that sound fair? Am I imagining this? Is this just totally insane or? No, it's thoughtful. It's it's thoughtful. I I remember having the head of a nursing unit in Portland, Maine, take my training. And she wrote me an email later and she said, I used to never speak about pregnancy loss or stillbirth when I would teach the childbirth education classes for the hospital. You know, I'd have 30 couples in there and we talk about here's your choice for epidural and here's your choice for Pitocin. And this is what if you want a natural birth and we do have you know, birthing tabs or whatever. We, we do the smorgasbord, we do the tour. I teach them the basic physiology, but we never touch on loss. And then I took your training and I start to think maybe I should. And then she said an experience happened where there was an unintended stillbirth and it was a couple that had been in her course and she was in the hospital on call or doing her, her, her rotation at the time of this death. And the father found her and she didn't recognize him. She teaches lots of couples, but she saw that he knew her and he came up to her and she said he collapsed in her arms, sobbing, saying, you never said this could happen. And she said that experience plus taking this course, I've revamped my training. I've revamped my childbirth education class. So now I say, no one wants your baby to die. No one wants you to die. We do everything we can. And sometimes everything we can is not enough. And sometimes babies die and sometimes moms die. So I need to take some time to talk to you about what we do and how we've been trained to be as real and present and honest and true to you through that kind of heartache. Because there's this sense of, of taboo. We're talking about death around pregnant women. Like, oh, if we talk about the baby dying, somehow we'll make it happen. Somehow, if she thinks about it, it's going to, like, th- this fear that if I think that I might have a miscarriage, I will. Or if I think I could, if I need to prepare for a stillbirth in my birth plan, I'm cursing myself. Or I'm somehow setting it up psychically. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, I'm going to make like it Like you're happen. inviting it to happen. Yeah, right. you're and inviting this, it somehow. Yeah, but... this magical systems thinking, I think, <laughs> like, children have. Because that's our developmental level around grief. I think that we're frozen at a very early developmental level around grief because we don't process it well as a culture. Most families don't talk about it. Some children aren't even allowed to go to funerals. We use euphemisms like grandma passed away. She, you know, she went to sleep or, you know, we say things that don't really speak clearly about death. And so most of us have these very frozen experiences around grief of our childhood. So when grief is considered, And especially if we're pregnant and we're thinking about, oh, my God, my baby might die. It can be like magical thinking. The childhood self is awake because that's our level of development around grief. We haven't matured. You know, we haven't companioned ourselves through other developmental levels because we've been frozen. Our culture isn't safe, isn't a safe place yet, isn't a wise place yet. But it will change, I think. It just is still developing around um, understanding bereavement 
and what people who are bereaved need. So I hope that's helpful. That's an example from someone who took the class, who leads courses, and she says, now I talk about it. But before I used to not, (laughs) because it was so hard. I was about to say, it didn't come up at all in my discussions when I was pregnant with both my kids. This did not. And I was with a midwife, home birth, centered care. It was not... I mean, I didn't do any of my courses at a hospital. It wasn't even there. But even within this framework where I think there probably is a bit more acceptance right. and understand, it still didn't come up. No, for sure. As no, I, discussion. I, I, I freelance with a few midwifery hosp- um, colleges. There's a few midwifery colleges that hire me once a year to come in and teach a course on pregnancy loss, a companioning support network ritual, because they cover it physiologically, you know, like what to do how to care for the body, what happens to the body, what what is a miscarriage on the physiological level, like physically, what do we do with the blood? How do we know it's it's like a life-threatening situation, hemorrhage, or and how do we know it's safe? You know, so they're trained in that level medically. But when it comes to the emotional support, there's not a formal training in most midwifery programs that I've seen. And so I have midwifery colleges calling me saying, Can you do the training around companioning for our midwifery students? I mean, just Two weeks ago, I was online with a group of midwifery students leading a training about what companioning is. And so if we can integrate this into medical school, into uh, um, midwifery schools, not just around pregnancy loss, you know, death writ large. You know, I my son's preschool teacher said, go get books about death for your kids and read them regularly as a part of all the other books you read. So it's, you don't just pull it out when the dog dies or when grandpa dies, because then it's too, it's like your system is in grief. So like you said, you're clear headed. You can start to process, well, what does grief mean when I'm not grieved? You know, and then when it happens, I can name it. I can say, I, well, I'm actually feeling what I read about. This is what this is. Right. Does that make sense? It does. And actually, it, it you started preemptively answering what I was about to ask mm-hmm. you, which is, it seems like part of this, even though it's unrelated to the pregnancy loss, but it, such a central component is our inability to deal with grief. So mm-hmm. what do we do as mm-hmm. parents of children? Mm-hmm. Maybe we have an experience. We have young kids, though. What can we do to help with this processing of grief for our kids to help them not fear this, to help them Mm. develop in ways that we haven't and possibly helping ourselves with it along the way, but coming from the knowledge that many of us are stunted at this younger Mm -hmm. age, this magical Mm -hmm. thinking, this everything. So obviously what you just said about bringing up books and having, you know, a repertoire of books on death is a helpful component about it. What else do you think families can do with young ones to help bring up another generation that isn't mm-hmm. as stunted? We'll just start with as stunted. Maybe they get one more <laughs> developmental stage sure. beyond us. We're not going sure. all the way up, but baby steps here. Baby steps. Baby steps going. By the year 3,100. Um, I think the best thing parents can do is go to therapy for their and- own anger, their own hurts, their own memories, their own griefs, because if they're not digested in a mom or dad or parent figure, they are really, really powerful, like sticky trigger spots. It's like they're Velcro in the soul. So as soon as my son starts yelling, if I haven't like owned my anger, become friendly with it, figured out why, what do I do when I'm angry? If I have a lot of resistance to my own anger and he's starting to yell because he's had a hard day, I can immediately go into fix it mode or shut down mode or you shut him down mode. Go to your room. What's wrong with you? We don't use that tone in this, you know, you know, and, and the 
body of myself could like get triggered. I think the same is with grief. We see our child crying. Maybe a friend said, you're not my friend anymore. I mean, that's a grief for a child. They come home from school. Mom, you know, Dustin said he's not my friend. It hurts, you know? Yeah. And it's it's like a loss of, wait, we I thought we were friends. We're not friends. How can I trust people? How can I, who am I? What, he, he called me an idiot or he hurt my feelings or, you know, I felt bullied today. Those are all little griefs that are ways we can practice to say, tell me more, honey. Oh, no, no. Let's talk about that. Let's fix that. Let me tell you why people bully. Let me, you know, I, I do it too. I want to fix. And I think for our own kids, we really want to fix. It's harder to companion the people closest to us, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, and that's because as you say it, I just go through my head all the times. I just try to fix when mm-hmm. someone has a baby. And I, I can often stay calm in a lot, not all the time, but I can stay calm. But I just, I want to fix it. I want you to not be sad anymore. So let's talk about why you shouldn't be sad over. Right. Whereas it's, as I say it, I'm going, oh my God, that's just not at all what I should be doing. Oh, but- well, people come, well, people come to you, Tracy, for advice and you have wise advice. You are well read. I've come to you for advice. So I think there's a place where we, we don't have to only hold space where all we do is just hold compassionate presence. Someone can say, come to us and say, I've got a arrow in my arm. It's really hurting. <laughs> oh, really? Tell me more. Oh, let me have compassionate presence for you while you hold, you know, that arrow in your muscle. No, no, come here, lay down. Here's some anesthesia. Yeah. We're going to do a surgery. You know, so there's both. We can have yeah. both. And we can have compassionate presence and skillful means. So it's not as if it's not wise to address skillful means with your child. But I think first, just notice, can we have compassionate presence for grief? Yes, absolutely. First, that. Just can, am I, can I be willing to keep my heart open in the face of sorrow. Yeah. What does that do? And I think I just want to add, cause I know therapy, I'm a huge fan, but I know how hard it is for people to get in. Yeah. I know there's, it's oh. so prohibitive yeah. in terms of cost and even access. This is one of those things that is, I mean, I have people that are looking for therapists and there's yeah. no one available. It's not, you know, a, something that we are so lacking because we don't support it as a culture. We tend to view it as, as a negative if you need to go. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's not for anyone who's in, it is not, it can be one of the greatest things you do when you find the right therapist. But if you cannot see a therapist, I know for me, part of my, my work in, you know, myself is doing my best of faking it till I make it. Which is, I don't have to feel, you know, I don't necessarily, I may feel anxious. I may have all those negative emotions, but if I can just not act on them right away, hmm, they can still be space. there. Yep. Yep. Yeah. And they're there. Space. Yep. But, and I, I try yep. to remind myself, I don't have to actually be calm and serene. I just have to actually pretend to be calm and serene for a bit. And <laughs> that can let <laughs> that reaction right. pass a bit more. And it's not perfect, but sure. it starts to end up coming up more because I think so much of our anxiety in general is we have these urges. We have these triggers. They come up right. so abruptly. If we can just wait, eventually that urge passes. Our body can't maintain that urge for very long. And so that's why, you know, when we have phobias or anxiety, part of treatment for that is to sit with it for a bit, Mm -hmm. because eventually the urge to flee 
your body kind of goes, oh, forget it. I give up. Let's just sit here. And it's not suddenly it doesn't feel as fearful anymore because you were able to sit with it long enough. But right. you have to get beyond that initial urge. And our triggers for right. grief, for anger, for everything are similar urges that come up. And if you can even just count to 10, count to 20 before responding. I know sometimes with our kids, we have this additional urge to jump in right away. Mm -hmm. But our ability to respond to them is driven by our ability to appropriately respond. And sure. so sure. that waiting for that moment, that time to just say, okay, I no longer feel like I need to fix things. I no longer feel like I need to do something. Those 20 seconds, 30 seconds, even one minute, if your child's not in danger, I mean, we're not talking about an arrow in the arm where they're bleeding out or, you know, they're running into traffic and you're, that's not what we're talking about here. But those grief moments and those anger where things are are safe, generally, like physically safe, you can wait a minute before responding if that allows you to get close to faking that compassionate presence mm -hmm. by overcoming your own anxiety around mm -hmm. grief, anger, etc. Sure. Sure. So, and when when I said I think parents need to go to therapy, I think it would be wise to say that there are many therapeutic things and not just formal therapy with a therapist. Like there's so much literature about the power of narrative therapy. Just your pen, paper and writing or um talking out loud in a you know, the Wall Street Journal even had a whole piece on expressive emotion and writing. And the therapy uh, the therapeutic power that a pen and paper or um, a typewriter or even they said talking out loud in a recording, recording yourself or even not keeping it. Just I guess they're just hearing yourself create narrative of meaning, narratives of meaning around difficult experiences can be very therapeutic. It rewires the way we give meaning to experience. Yeah. So I think uh, let me just say for all of you listening, I, I didn't want to come across this flippant and say, oh, everyone, all parents go to therapy. I, I would think, I do think it's beneficial to think, well, what is therapeutic for me, given my situation, my circumstance, my capacity to engage? If I have 10 minutes a day to write about the moments where I had to wait a minute and what it felt like in my body, that can like, strengthen our power to make that two minutes and then not feel so anxious because we can write about it. Well, I was anxious because I remember when I would yell at my mom she would take her, my toothbrush and put it in soap and rub my mouth with soap and water. And I have that memory. So when I, when my son does it or my daughter does it, I think, how, you know, I wasn't given any space. I was treated with this kind of harsh hand. I want to harshly respond. So I pause, I breathe. I remember that memory. I don't respond that way. And I fake it till I make it. Or I then later tomorrow, sit down with my pen and paper and write that story out when I was seven or five, what happened to me, what that tasted like in my mouth. I mean, this happened to me. This is what my mom did to me. She would take my toothbrush and put soap on it and rub my mouth, clean my teeth, saying, you never speak to me that way. I'm going to clean your mouth. You know, and so yeah. I remember. So, it, you know, to, to want to stop someone from doing something where I got in so much trouble and my body has a memory, you know, to write about that can help me de-escalate the inner trigger and give me some time to process what that was like for me in my childhood. Yeah. And I love, you know, the journaling I've read about is good. And mm -hmm. I do want to advocate for the speaking out loud mm -hmm. because not everyone writes. There's a whole, mm -hmm. I mean, as the mother of a dyslexic daughter, the mm -hmm. idea of writing something out is just would be more draining mentally mm -hmm. to her than mm -hmm. to vocalize it. So the power from that, and I think sometimes we get 
lost and why does it work? And so I think people think it has to be written to work, but it's actually the power from all of this comes from our mind's ability. Our mind thinks so many different things. Mm -hmm. So much of it isn't true. We can think things that we know we don't really believe. Um, we can think our, our brain goes all sorts of places that we don't have control over. But once we vocalize things out loud, writing them down, saying them out loud, we make them real. This is, and that allows us to process them because when we don't say it out loud, it's easy to push it away. It's just another thought. It's not something we actively need to confront. But when it is out, whether it's in paper or verbally out loud, then we are starting to recognize how real it is for us. And, you know, I, I will share very briefly uh, something we did when I was doing my, my master's in clinical to understand the effects of um, OCD on people. Mm -hmm. And it was that our teacher came up and said, okay, I need you to think in your head about the person you love most in the world. Just gather that person in your head, how much you love them, think about it. And then I'm gonna show you a sentence and I the blank space, I want you to put the name of that person and then I need you to say this out loud. And the sentence on the board was, I wish blank was dead. Mm. And it was, everyone shut up. We <laughs> could not get that sentence out because somehow to say it, Mm -hmm. was to make it real. We could think it, we were able to read it in our heads. That going in and out was fine, but saying it, nope, no one was able to do it. And the highlight was, I mean, for OCD, the level of obsessions and the compulsion to act in a way is driven mm -hmm. by feelings as strong as that. And that was the uh, lesson there. But right. it is... For us, when I think about that and I think about those triggering emotions and those triggers that we have, especially around grief and, and anger, I think they're almost two sides, obviously, mm -hmm. of the same coin. So much mm -hmm. of anger is actually masking the grief that we have. And so when we see our kids get angry or others get angry at a situation, we are, we're often hiding grief underneath. Right. But this is that speaking out loud allows us to confront it. And so when we have those negative stories and we're able to say them out loud, it makes them real. And then it also makes our ability to cope with them a little bit more real too, because it's not something that's just floating around in the back, coming out to haunt you, but not being addressed. You keep it quiet and hidden and it just keeps pushing forward, pushing forward, pushing forward by letting it out. You're actually able to, I think as you would put so eloquently, create space to mm -hmm process it and be compassionate for it. So in terms of therapy, that's just a little bit on why that can work so well and why it doesn't need to be written. It can be verbal. Mm -hmm. It doesn't need to be verbal to someone. You saying it out loud mm -hmm. to yourself is mm -hmm. just as good. It's just sure. as real. I sure. still could not say that sentence out loud with any member of my family, even to myself in a quiet room. I'd be like, no, no, yeah, no, 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 you know, without sure. responding that way. So it is very powerful. So Amy, thank you. I know I've had you on for so long here. Can you quickly just go over for everyone where they find the courses? I will share all the links in the show notes, guys. So when you're looking for Amy's courses on everything, but she has other courses. We've talked about these two because I think they're so prominent and a discussion that is lacking wholly in the birth and parenting areas. It's something that still remains taboo for reasons as we've discussed here. But Amy, you have so many courses. Where do people find you? What are some of the courses ongoing now um, for everyone who's interested? Well, before I say that, I just want to thank you. 
you're really one of my most favorite people. You have a bright mind, a good heart, and such a curiously like, um, or curious. I should say, you have curiosity about the world. Or world is what I'm trying to say. You have a beautiful curiosity about the world that informs how you listen so carefully to people and how you take uh, information in. And you're not afraid to consider different points of view. I love that about you. So thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. You're yeah, one of my you. favorite people too. For all the same <laughs> oh. reasons. And well, I, 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 I learned so much from Amy. I have to say, like it is your worldliness on these issues. I am such a linear thinker in so many ways, and you are not in so many ways. And I love that because it is such a different way of viewing the world. And it is I wish I could be more like you when I grow up is uh, what I <laughs> Oh boy. I don't know. <laughs> okay. Thank you for the compliments. Thank you for your kindness and your friendship and colleagueship. So those of you listening, thanks. If you've stuck through us this long, thank you. And you can find my work on a website called birthbreathanddeath.com. And there are courses that relate to personal and professional development if you're involved in birth work or death work or breath work and with what i mean by that is mindful living what does it mean to be conscious of uh, perhaps your emotional or spiritual or um, uh, mental frameworks in ways that are more nuanced and more deep i would say you know if you have a depth and interest in looking at your shadow self or the parts of you that might have been harder to makes peace with or looking at for instance your relationship with food there's a course on food and grief that's you know coming up so so I would say just go to the website check out the courses know you're welcome you can join as a member of the institute every month I interview someone and members can um, listen for you know that's just for membership alone so yeah so please come and see what what interests you and tracy thanks for lifting up my work thanks for interviewing me about this topic thanks for taking your time oh thank you so yeah. much for your time on this because it's so crucial and i can say those conversations monthly are amazing that amy has and if you can't make it live because i never can um they are available afterwards too Sure. so sure. if you are a member and you do get to see those but it, it it covers such a wide range of of topics that it's really for anyone interested in life it is an end death, as you said, but for all of it, um, they are fascinating. So like I said, all the links will be in the show notes. You're able to find everything there. Amy, thank you so much from the bottom of my heart again for this. This is such a difficult discussion, but hopefully the fact, hopefully people have been able to make it through and can see the need for us to develop further in our mm -hmm. way of coping with grief. Cause only that I think can really transform how we approach families and everything else. So absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Tracy. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you for joining me. And I want to give a special shout out to those of you who may have found this particularly hard to listen to. I know how difficult it is. And I, my heart goes out to all of you who have struggled with this loss. And especially if you did not have the type of support that you needed. Next week, you can come join us on a bit of a, a 180 here as I talk to Dr. David McIntosh. He is a pediatric ENT in Australia who specializes in sleep disordered breathing. And we are going to go through everything you need to know to assess if your child needs help and how to get them that help. Because as I learned, it is way more important than we ever knew. So join me next week. And in the meantime, Happy parenting.